electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. I'm Scott Wapner, and you're listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast, the most profitable hour of the trading day. We record this live weekdays at 12 Eastern. Listen in. All right, Carl, thank you very much, and welcome to the Halftime Report. I'm Scott Wapner, front and center this hour, earnings and interest rates, and whether the former is good enough to overcome the latter and keep this rally going. We discuss and debate that with the Investment Committee. Joining me for the hour today, Shannon Sakosha, Josh Brown, and Jim Labenthal. We do have a pretty nice move in the market going on. Let's check the markets today. We do have the best week since late July for the S&P and the NAS. Tesla's a bit of a drag today, but the Dow's holding on to 200 plus, three quarters of a percent. NAS is good for 1% even, 416, the yield on the 10-year note. We're going to get to all of that, as we always do, of course. But Steve Leisman is at the desk. That means we have something really important. And those are headlines from the Philly Fed's Patrick Harker, whose index today was worse than expected. And that's part of the story. But go ahead. What do you got? Yeah, he's going to talk about monetary policy, saying he expects the funds rate to be well above 4% by the end of the year. That, by the way, as we'll show you in a second, is in line with where the market is priced. So the Fed is going to stop hiking rates sometime next year. But when it does, it will hold policy at a restrictive rate. Let monetary policy do its work, says the Philly, Philly Fed president. If we have to tighten further after stopping, he says, we can tighten further based on the data. So no friend of Labenthal on my right here is Patrick Harker from Philly. A sustained decline in inflation we required before we let up on tightening. On the outlook, he sees flat GDP 2022, one and a half in 2023, 2% in 2024. Inflation goes six, four, two and a half. Boy, it'd be fabulous if that happened. There's unemployment goes four and a half to four percent where it will peak and then come down in 2024. Inflation, he says, is caused by a perfect storm of events, Russia, pandemic, fiscal and monetary policy. Interestingly here, folks, this is something I'm seeing a little bit more of. Fed officials talking about the fiscal side of things. U.S. government policies, he says, contributed to supply side issues. He mentions tariffs, immigration policy, not building enough housing, as well as fiscal spending. Yeah, so... And he um, does blame the Fed, too, by the way, just to be clear. Yeah, I mean, you, you reference Labenthal because Labenthal can't have the Fed continuing to hike into next year into what is already a slowing economy, right? That's the worst. Look, I got pom-poms That's the for worst Jimmy to be for right. Are you kidding me? Everybody wants Jimmy to be right. I mean, Scott, yeah, you're exactly yeah. right, right? I mean, I took a lot of comfort, and I think the market this week took comfort from uh, Mr. Bullard's comments on Sunday. I think it was Sunday about, hey, let's do two more 75s and pause and look around. I think what the market is saying, and it's not just me, the market is saying, look, we can get through this. You do two more rate hikes, make them big, make them 75, and just stop and look around, because, Steve, what's going to happen there, you're going to be at four and a half percent over the course of nine months, 450 basis points. I don't think I'm being unreasonable in saying that's a good Can I respond, Jim, time? before you go too far down that go rabbit ahead. hole, which go is... Ahead. Uh, go ahead. Guys, He's already in the hole, but go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I don't want to not give you your say here, but if you wouldn't mind taking a look at the Fed rate outlook. No, I, 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 I know. I know. Because guys, we're at, are we at, are we at, like you said earlier, five? But we're five sub, percent. We're, we're, there we are, May 23. We're at Subway sandwich now. 
But let me for po- May let me point this out. Five dollars, isn't that a thing? Uh, Steve, five percent on in May. And what's also interesting, Jim, is you see that gap between the the, the May and the January number, the January twenty four. That gap has come down. So there was like this big easing built in. Now, I'm, I'm just saying, Jim, I, you could be you. totally right. Yeah. I'm just pointing out where the market is priced right now, not for stopping at four, but for going all the way to five. And, and your point is well made. I'll make this very quick. Um, the, we know you would admit the Fed funds futures market is awfully bad at finding its final rate. I mean, it's very good at going along with the trend where it is right now. But frankly, this is a very schizophrenic market, the Fed funds futures market. Now, right now, it's been right. And anybody wants to throw a brick at me, I do. But I mean, it's been a very consistent Fed in suggesting that rates are going to continue to go up. And once they go up, they're going to continue to keep them at elevated levels where they are. Your hope is that the strength in the consumer which is offsetting some of the manufacturing strength holds that they have the ability to do what they need to do for as long as they need to do it because the consumer is strong enough to let them do it. If the consumer starts to roll with the manufacturing economy starting to roll, you got a problem. You sure we do. all got a problem. You sure do. So part of this thesis is based on what we're hearing from businesses that they're frankly just not letting workers go uh, because they know how hard it is to rehire them. Now, look, if you go above 5 percent and that's the funding cost for businesses, that may change. That may change in a hurry. See, Josh, the, the, the danger is right. And we asked this question at the very top. Are earnings good enough to overcome uh, higher interest rates for today or this week? They appear to be. The question is, can you trust the earnings today for what they're going to be tomorrow? Right. This is the now and later market, as we've been describing to people. They're very two different things. If you think that the economy is going to slow and earnings are going to follow. Well, I think we have good trends in earnings in terms of beats, but we all have to remind ourselves these are companies beating estimates that have been lowered and lowered and lowered again really since the start of this year. It's good enough for short-term sentiment. People hear companies that they're invested in say constructive things. Demand is not falling off a cliff. There aren't any real blow-ups to speak of. There are certainly areas that, uh, you know, of, of concern. You listen to the trucking companies, some of the stuff that they're talking about. They're using the R word uh, in, in some of their commentary. But like, you're just not seeing anything um, to say that earnings is the concern. The real concern is that we've done a lot in a very short period of time, and we really don't know what the ramifications will be in funding markets, in emerging markets. We don't know what's going to happen um, with, with the rapidly increased cost of borrowing and how many blowups we'll end up getting. Like, none of that has happened yet. So as much as it's late, maybe potentially halfway through the game or, or late in the game of the hikes themselves, in terms of the ramifications of all that hiking and tightening, coordinated tightening around the world, yeah, right. we really have no idea what that's going to lead to. That's a, I think that's a 2023 story. It is. Um, and, and that's what keeps a lid on. That's what keeps a lid on whatever optimism you want to have about how close we are to the end of, of, the, of the cycle. That's why you got to be careful to not read too much into the fact that it's all good now, but it might not be all good then. Uh, Shannon, why nothing's you, happened yet. Not yet. Not yet. But people are betting on the fact that it's going to eventually happen. And I mean, I've had many conversations over the last handful of days with some pretty big time and smart investors who say, OK, you know, now's now. 
uh, but eventually it's like going to definitely come home to roost. Uh, so, Shannon, I'd like your view. Well, if, if our anticipation, we're anticipating in 2023 it comes home to roost, shouldn't the Fed be anticipating that as well? I think that's the question um, that I would pose to Steve and, and, and Jim around, you know, these expectations for the Fed, and, and Josh said it best, uh, you know, I can think a couple of weeks ago, terrible at forecasting um, where Fed funds are going to be because we do not know what the ramifications are of the pace of the hikes that we've seen. We also have what's going on behind the scenes, um, really, and has, we've lost emphasis on, is balance sheet tightening, quantitative tightening. Six months ago, Scott, we couldn't talk enough about how the balance sheet was going to be wound down. Um, and, I, and I think that that is, is the lever that we're really not talking about in terms of what the Fed could be doing behind the scenes. Even if they do get to four and a half at the end of this year, um, that transmission mechanism, they could be you know, sort of taking that lever down in terms of um, the balance sheet and providing a little bit of a cushion. I think the other thing that we need to think about is, are we talking about an economic contraction? Are we talking about negative GDP of, you know, 1% next year? Or are we talking about a deep and sustained recession? To get a deep and sustained recession, we need to lose a million and a half jobs this year. Um, I don't know about you, but when I talk to companies in the real world, to Jim's point, they're not laying off people. Um, and so I have a hard time seeing the expectation for a deep and sustained recession from late 2023 into mid-2024 because I don't think we're going to lose enough jobs to create that environment. Yeah. Mm. So, Leesman, I mean, they, they want – you have to be – I mean, you have to be pretty open with what they want, the Fed, right? They want growth to slow. They want spending to slow. They want – Jobs to they slow. want jobs to slow. They want everything to slow. They're telling you that they're going yeah. to do whatever it takes, essentially, essentially to, to make it slow. But people like Jim are still out there having a rosy view. Also, I don't, also I don't know. Rosy view. Let, me, let me. I want to take something that Josh said in a perfectly understandable way and make it less understandable and talk about it in monetary policy terms. And by the way, I just want to point out the market too, is you gave us <laughs> yeah. the Harker headlines, yeah. uh, which were hawkish. There's well, no other way to yeah, and uh, suggest Harker's it. Harker's a middle of the road guy. Harker's not going to lead the pack. He's going to vote next year. He's not going to lead the pack down, you know, to, to, down the hawkish path. He's going he's to be middle of the road. So a guy like that talking about. Let me just. I want. I want to emphasize what Josh was saying. And it gets back to the great conversation we had with Professor Siegel a, a week or so ago as follows. The Fed says it just became restrictive. So if you think about the idea the Fed just became restrictive, all of the monetary policy up to the point that it became restrictive is prospectively into the future stimulative to the economy. Restrictive and the impact of a restrictive funds rate is what's in our future. And that's when I said, Josh said it perfectly understandably, that's a 2023 story. So I'm saying the impact of a restrictive rate, that explains, by the way, why the Fed felt it had to get to where it was going so quickly. It wanted to get restrictive so that the future that we had was one of restrictive policy. Our survey today, Josh, of the All-America Economic Survey, finds that 43% are affected by higher interest rates. That number is going to get higher, and that's going to slow stuff down in the future. You know what? I just We've want to just point out, gotten restrictive. I just want to point out, too, because um, this is happening of the moment as well, that it looks like Adidas has, Adidas, excuse me, um, has, has updated its guidance uh, and has cut its outlook in part uh, on higher inventories. Right? There's the stock down to 4.25%. Um, the same kind of thing we heard from, from um, Nike. Which, if you pull that one up too, and what we heard from Nike a few weeks ago, but Nike's down in sympathy here. 
uh, and it's affecting a lot of retail, right? You got a lot of inventory. You're going to have to cut prices as a result of that. They cite what they call lower consumer demand in Western markets since the start of September. So I throw it, Jimmy, back to you in what is a strong consumer is undoubtedly weakening in certain pockets. I will agree with you that the consumer is weakening a little bit, but I don't think the Adidas, if that's how you pronounce it, I don't know, news is reflective of that. What the Adidas news is reflective of is the goods to services transition that's been happening for quite some time. I'm just telling you what they said. said I'm I'm explaining what they said. Yeah, they said it's due to lower demand, lower consumer demand. But take a look at the airlines. People bought all their sneakers in 2020 and 2021. Now they've got them on their feet and they're going through the airports and they're going places and they're doing things. You wear sneakers for like, you wear the same pair of sneakers for more than like a few years? Hold on. Let me... let me take a look. Hold on. <laughs> don't, don't, cut, don't cut to me. I want to see this. I love, I love these. I, no, I love these stories of too much inventory. He looks like he's been wearing them for like five years. Five years. No, he's got nice shoes. Listen, I love these stories of too much inventory because it, it's something that's going to help out in the CPI. I know it's not good for earnings and not good for stocks. Tell me of too much inventory. You end up yes. cutting prices and it ends up showing up in the CPI. That's great. That's, it is great. And I, I disagree with you at my peril, but here we go, Scott. You said the Fed wants to cut jobs. It wants growth to slow. I disagree. The Fed wants prices to come down. Growth and jobs are a derivative of prices. If you can get prices to come down because there's too many darn Nikes and Adidas's out there, going back to the old school pronunciation, then that's good. You could spin it however you want. Um, But they're telling you pretty explicitly (laughs) that, I mean, look, sometimes uh, debating with you is like arguing at a brick wall. I mean, they're telling you things that you don't you. want to believe. No, and that's okay. t- I just it's explained okay. it. It's a good well, my, to my point, transition. At, my point at the very top of the show is that hey, Scott. Y- you've got, hold on, <clears throat> you've got 83% beat rate, 53 S&P companies that reported this week, 44 beat earnings. The beat rate is my, 74% my, so far. My biggest question is whether a better than expected earnings season, Josh, is important and powerful enough to offset all of the other stuff and keep the rally going for some period of time before things get a little dicey again. Well, I'll tell you next week when we hear from Google, Amazon, Apple, because those are the real earning stories mm. that matter mathematically to the index. But to Jim's, to, you know, to, well, the, the, great, the great scenario would be that prices come down and the consumer calms down and doesn't roll completely over. And there is historical precedent for that. It is possible. A lot of the leading indicators that started to uh, get our attention on the inflation front, um, you could say nature is healing to, to, to some uh, extent. Like when you look at uh, the Mannheim index of, uh, of used car prices, that is crashing. But, and, and we say, oh, who cares, used cars? That was like one of the first canaries in the coal mine this cycle that, hey, wait a minute, something here is going very wrong. Um, so you've got that. You've got the semiconductor uh, demand slowdown is a huge story. Those stock prices and market caps have all been reflecting that. Look at natural gas in Europe right now. Back to pre-war levels. Uh, you're at 117. It was 100 before the invasion. That has made a huge round trip lower. So a lot of those early indicators that there was this serious inflation issue in the system, they're starting to go the Fed's way, which obviously is important. Is this uh, a news market too. You, is Josh Brown well, spinning no, a positive I, outlook? I mean, I, I'm, I'm a I'm, news guy. I'm making I'm the case. I'm hearing news here. 
I'm making the I'm making the case. The the things that I'm referring to are completely outside of the control of the Fed, but they're going to help the Fed be able to say, look, a lot of progress all of a sudden. Um, and the the problem though is that the plural of anecdote is not data. So I'm giving you a lot of specific examples of the early signs of inflation uh, items now getting back to a place where, hey, look, a lot of that's coming out of the system. The thing that you're going to really have to contend with, though, is uh, balances in bank accounts are still very high and activity is ferocious in travel, in hospitality. It just is not backing down the services side. So it could take a really long time for that to happen. Exactly. So if that's the case... And maybe the evidence is in Josh's camp that it's going to take a lot longer for things to potentially get bad in the economy than than maybe we first thought. So as an investor, if your runway is a little bit longer than you expected, Shan, what I'm, what what am I supposed to do if I think that I could have a year? I don't know, um, eight, 12 months minimum before we start seeing all of this start to show up in earnings. Yeah, I I. I I disagree with that thesis that that we're going to be waiting that long. So, I mean, I think from an investment perspective, if you look at the earnings season uh, this quarter and you look at some of the guidance for the fourth quarter, I agree. We haven't seen the full pain of the rate hikes this year. However, what we have seen is that we've seen management teams that are able to execute in an environment where, to Josh's point, we saw estimates come down significantly and we were anticipating that there would be disappointments versus those lower estimates. So if I look at over the next couple of years, what are the potential drivers in a slow growth environment? Areas like healthcare. Um, you know, jo- Josh, uh, Jim talks about, excuse me, a lot about manufacturing, the reshoring, the additional productivity enhancements that we're going to need. So you need to be thinking about it in terms of if the expectation is slow or negative growth in 2023, 2024 from an economic perspective. Um, I don't think we're going to see another year where we're down 25% in the S&P 500 next year, Scott. And so I think you're looking at a combination of valuation and the ability to grow both top and bottom line, and maybe perhaps we start to see some differentiation among some of these companies who have managed to execute in a time where I've been told companies don't know how to execute in an inflationary environment. I think there are some out there, and I think it's our job to find them. I think things are obviously, Steve, still pretty good. By and large, they're pretty good. Even in the, you know, the the Philly Feds and all these other things that have been below expectations, it's not like uh, a horrific scenario is being painted Um, in the economy. So maybe there is a longer runway until things potentially go sideways, depending on what happens with inflation and what the Fed ultimately has to do. It it is true that people remain employed. It is true that they're getting wages and and the unemployment rate is low. We've had relatively strong job growth as we go through this adjustment. Guidance isn't horrific. The guidance and earnings are terrible. the, 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 The worst part right now are consumers' attitudes when it comes to inflation and the way they feel about the economy well, they're and the pissed. concern about they're pissed. the recession. Well, but, but why me, shouldn't they? But they're, it's not like they're, they're mad, okay? But they're, they're still spending. Well, they are still, still spending, because they have but no it choice. Is, the concern right now is what happened to the savings and whether or not they choose to use the time of the Christmas season to rebuild their savings rather than spending. You know where that shows up, Steve? It doesn't show up at the cash register. It shows up at the polls. It shows up at the polls, okay. but it, it can also show up at the cash. Well, yes, eventually it, it can, not, but, right now, but right it's now not it's not. One. But right now uh, it's not. I, I wanted to add one thing that uh, to Josh Brown's potential good signs out there, which is, 
Yesterday's Beige Book had this idea that there was signs that supply disruptions were easing. And I bring that up, Scott, because you may not remember, but back in early 2021, you may have even been on the desk, the Beige Book came out and made a huge deal of the supply disruptions. And really, the market got focused on that through the Beige Book. They were, we, were, we were counting the number of times they mentioned supply disruptions. Now, this is one of those things, this is very much the way Josh was saying it, early days, early signs of things clearing. And that's why, by the way, the manufacturing Green industry, shoots? Shoot, I hate that. I hate that. I, I know. But look, you know, Josh has been a kind of beacon in the fog here. He's always kept his thing focused on this. So if he's ready to think about a turn, I would maybe think about it. I mean, Josh, you have always been like, forget all this nonsense over here. This is what's going on. And, and I like the way you've been like, we're not going, we, you know, we're not clicking our heels and going back to Kansas and the way things were. You've been steady on that. But if there's now a possibility that some of these things are beginning to clear, then maybe the Labenthal idea, which is a crazy idea, you do two more 75s, which you bring you to four and change. If they can stop and hold there for a bit instead of going further, because one of the things we're discounting, there's two things we're discounting, the actual rate and the probability of a mistake. The both of those things you have to factor in to your investment thesis here. Remember a few weeks ago, you were thinking they would you wanted them to or thought they might do 100 and then sit and take a look around. I remember the conversation I, I, I we like, had. I like and now you're around. now you're now you're talking 150. Yeah. So that's where the goalpost has moved to. Fair enough. Uh, in the last few weeks, Josh. Uh, we are a world of wash in debt. And so when I talk about we don't know what the ramification we look, you've got now home prices, uh, uh, home sales down 23 percent in a year. It's like an, it's an incredible decline. It any outside of the the opening months of the pandemic and let's say 2009, there's really almost nothing like it. And the only thing keeping that from really becoming a catastrophe is there's just no inventory out there. And you've got just this demographic tailwind where there are going to be buyers. But, you know, the sellers don't want to go anywhere. They don't want a new mortgage at, at much worse rates. And there just aren't there's just not enough places to go. But like that's a market where we have basically frozen it. We really don't know yet the ramifications of having done that. Go back to the, the hiking cycle in the 90s, which wasn't that extreme. Um, in 1995, when, when, when they began in earnest, uh, the pause, and then they started hiking again. Like, you didn't know that a couple of years later, in 1998, you were going to have a global financial crisis because of dollar-denominated debt um, and, and currencies around the world. So, like, we could have a scenario where we don't get a huge drop in unemployment in the United States, but we still get financial market crises, rolling crises, rolling panics. I'm not predicting it. I'm just saying, we're saying like 75 basis points November, 75 in December, and then we stop and look around. The die might already be cast. Like there are potential for crises that could be in motion already that we're not seeing and we're not thinking about because of how rapidly we just understand something. A year ago at this time, you could draw a picture of a kangaroo, upload it to the internet, and sell it for six hundred thousand dollars. I'm not even joking around. That's a thing. That, that's how true. quickly we've gone from that. And now you look at companies reporting earnings. Go look at Blackstone's earnings. Go look at the marks they're putting on their portfolio. They're saying like they're they're private credit funds and and so go look at what they're saying is the per, the quote unquote performance 
of these things that don't trade in the public market. I don't believe any of that. So I think things are, are going to uh, come to a head in 23 because we just don't know what all of these hikes this year are going to mean for so many of the funding sources mm-hmm. in the real economy. And I, I don't think you need to see blowups or fireworks. I just think it's too early to be like, oh, yeah, the Fed will pause. They'll look around. They might look around and see a lot of things going wrong that they didn't expect. And that's the unintended consequences of trying to normalize policy that's been ridiculous for years in a space of six months. All right. All of that is well said. By the way, we're going to take a quick break. Uh, but before we do, Harker also says so he doesn't think they're going to get to target. Steve, until the end of 24. Yeah, the inflation target, yeah, two right. and ha- they're two and a half percent by 20. It's yeah. not even 24 because yeah. it's still a half a point above. Yeah. yeah, so, I mean, we're still 22. Hello. Uh, all right, thank you, Steve Leesman. Uh, thank you. S&P's just dipped negative uh, by a smidge. Uh, you have, do have the Dow hanging on to a 100-point gain. We're back after this to break down some of the big earnings movers on the half. We're back in just two minutes. Old Dominion Freight Line was built on keeping promises. With an industry-leading on-time delivery record and low claims rate, we keep promises better than any other LTL freight carrier because we treat every shipment like it's our most important one. Visit odfl.com to learn more. B2B selling is tougher than ever, and we feel your pain. If you're struggling to close deals, consider giving LinkedIn Sales Navigator a shot. This sales intelligence platform helps professionals like you engage high-value customers, drive higher revenue, and increase sales performance. Sales Navigator also guides you in targeting the right buyers, highlights key signals such as job changes or which accounts you should prioritize, and uncovers hidden hot prospects so you can find those buyers that are most likely to convert. Fueled by LinkedIn's 1 billion member platform, Sales Navigator gives you the most up-to-date first-party data, enabling you to unlock conversations with the people that matter. Right now, you can try LinkedIn Sales Navigator and get a 60-day free trial at linkedin.com slash halftime report. That is linkedin.com slash halftime report for a 60-day free trial. Let LinkedIn Sales Navigator help you sell like a superstar today. Just go to linkedin.com slash halftime report and get started. We do have a number of earnings movers to discuss today, led by IBM. Shannon, it's yours. They beat, they raise guidance. Do tell your thoughts, please. Well, um, everyone hates this stock, Scott, so I was happy to see uh, a nice delivery on the uh, earnings side. Um, one of the things that we've really looked for is this idea around executing on the business, right-sizing the different components, and the re-emphasis on the hybrid environment. Um, and I think that the, uh, the results here are really showing that IBM is executing on that. If you also look at from a consultant perspective, their consulting business, um, they continue to get higher utilization. So while that tends to come under uh, focus and, and potentially be cut during periods where we're seeing slowing economic environment, the importance of productivity enhancement will continue, to, uh, we think, to support utilization. The challenge with IBM is, is clear. Um, you're getting paid a nice dividend. There's great free cash flow. Um, will this uh, migration go straight from on-site to the cloud without stopping in hybrid? That's always been the threat. Um, but I think these results show that there are plenty of companies who are going to be operating in this hybrid infrastructure environment for some time to come. Okay, uh, appreciate that. Uh, Union Pacific is yours too. You know what Danaher is as well. So UNP was mixed, Danaher beat. You want to just give me 10 seconds on each, please? Yeah, Danaher. Um, so there's going to be a little bit of, of uh, comparison. St- 
uh, struggles for Danaher over the course of the next couple of quarters. There was some inventory stocking um, on their testing, um, you know, that was COVID, respiratory illness related ahead of cold and flu season. Um, but this is a great life sciences diagnostic company. There's been a ton of acquisition consolidation in this space, and Danaher is well positioned here. Um, Union Pacific, uh, their challenge, and Jim and I talked about this earlier, continues to be being able to hire enough conductors and engineers. Um, they are going to continue to struggle with that over the course of the next couple of quarters, and I think it could limit them in terms of capacity. Kinder Morgan, Jimmy, profits yeah. jumped 16 percent. Yeah. And no and big surprise what's been taking place in the energy patch. Kinder's, though, down 4 percent. What's up with that? Yeah, they had a they had a slight miss. And so it's just trading on the headlines. I think after today you get that just, you know, the algo selling on a on a slight miss uh, and the stock will pop back up. I mean, remember, this is a dividend yield of around six percent. Uh, that dividend yield is likely to be going higher over the years to come on the basis of not just natural gas prices, but the amount of flows that go through their pipeline. That's really where their earnings come from. So, you know, don't like the little miss here. There's always a little bit of trading uh, income and losses that go on. And that's really what this came from. The long term prognosis here is very good. Freeport, uh, Shan, profits plunging on weak copper prices. It's up though four and a half percent. It's a highly cyclical stock. And, you know, I've, I've owned this for a really long time, Scott, um, since it was in the uh, the single digits, uh, frankly. And so, you know, catalyst here for, for Freeport would be, uh, you know, a pickup in production in China next year. But we're going to have to wait for that for there to be really a near term catalyst for uh, FCX. Alaska Air, Jimmy. Yeah, frustrating, frustrating, frustrating. Down four percent. A beat again. <laughs> stocks down. I mean, I mean, in, in a t- well, look what United, right? United's yeah. so good. Uh, American a week or so ago. Yeah. I mean, maybe I, you're in the wrong one. No, because I I thought that too. But I just looked at them all year to date. They're all down roughly the same. There's no difference between Alaska and the rest of them. The issue here and the reason it's down is because no matter which airline, no matter how good the results are, people are continuing to say a recession is right around the corner. And in a recession, you don't own airlines. Actually, though, to your point, Scott, this is the one airline you would want to own because it has three point two billion dollars of cash against two point two billion dollars of debt. And if you do go into recession, obviously, we know that's not my call. That's a strong balance sheet that will get it through it. All right. We do have uh, coming up next a new investor letter just dropping from Greenlight to David Einhorn. We've got it. We'll break it down next. More than 10 percent of women in leadership roles quit their jobs in 2021, the highest rate in at least five years, according to a report from Lean-In and McKinsey. The study found that for every 100 men promoted out of entry-level positions, only 87 women are promoted and 82 women of color, the so-called broken rung on the corporate ladder. That's your ESG Fast Fact of the Day. What does it mean to be rich? Is it having more stories to share or time to give? Is it being able to keep your loved ones close or travel somewhere far away? At Edward Jones, we believe the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Your dedicated financial advisor will take a comprehensive approach to your financial strategy to help support what truly matters to you. edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. All right, we're back. Uh, just going through a new letter here, uh, dated October 19th from Greenlight. David Einhorn, of course, 
uh, is commenting on the market in which he says a couple of things I want to pull out here for you. Um, by the way, they're up about 18 percent net of fees on, on the year. So they're having a great year and obviously well beating the market. Uh, as lo- he said, this is what he says. As long as official policy is to make the stock market go down so that people are less wealthy, so that they buy fewer things, so that prices stop going up, all while doing nothing about fiscal policy, we believe the correct posture is to be bearish on stocks and bullish on inflation. To that end, we have reduced our gross long exposure substantially this year. I'll give you the first crack on that. Well, I'm wondering, I'd, I'd like to know what he's referring to by fiscal policy. Is it the Inflation Reduction Act? Is it, is it uh, debt uh, relief? I, I really don't know. What my feeling is, is that fiscal policy is probably not the problem. Supply chain disruptions, and you know, particularly the war in Ukraine, is the problem, which leads to the question, how the heck can the Fed solve that? I, I don't think it can. I think he is obviously referring to excessive spending on the fiscal side. I think it's fair to assume that. Um, but nonetheless... Right. The spirit of this is don't fight the Fed. It is don't fight the Fed. It is don't fight the Fed. And you know what? Going back to what I said, if this market will rally when the Fed's done, when is the well, Fed obviously. done is the question. Well, I know, but that's the question. When is the Fed done? Not anytime I do, soon. I take comfort from what James Bullard said on Sunday or Saturday, whenever it was, that he'd like to see two more rate hikes, 75 each, and be done. And the reason I take comfort from him is because he has been thought leadership within the Fed. So, Josh, you want to um, you want to weigh in on on this, um, by the way, I mean, other, he says other than Twitter, um, which they did purchase in the in the third quarter, you know, betting that Musk was going to eventually have to pay full price. Uh, that was a great bet by them. We expect that one way or another, the yeah. deal will close at or near the original agreed upon price. That's what he says. Other than that, they didn't add any new material positions at all during uh, the quarter, and they believe we're still in uh, that bear market. I think uh, the most interesting thing about the letter is that, you know, what they're really doing is doubling down on their belief that there are going to be mispricings and that, you know, a lot of the return is going to come from the type of market environment that you're in. So calling it a bear market is important. I know earlier this year there was a lot of debate about the nomenclature. Why does it matter if it's up 20, you know, if it's off 20 percent? or not? It does matter because, as you could see from the success that Greenlight has had this year, that dictates the way that you treat, for example, dips in the market. or Are they viable? Rallies in the market. Are they, you know, worthy of taking profits or betting that they'll continue forward? So it sounds like they're willing to bet that the current environment will continue. I think the reason why, though, that this letter is so important just for the investing community overall is because Greenlight is an example of a firm that is very comfortable not being a part of these bull market rallies or trying to outpace them, not trying to be another you know, Tiger Cub or, or Tiger Global. Um, they stick to their knitting, and in environments like this, it reminds an investor who maybe has 5 or 10% of their money in hedge funds, why even bother with hedge funds? This is the reason why. Because here you have a fund that's willing to go very far outside of what everyone else is doing, make the make the out you know the the outlier bet, and then profit when it actually pays off. So I think they deserve a lot of credit for having done that here. He's very contrite too. I mean, he's he's open and honest with his investors, pointing out that over the last decade, quote, yeah. we have significantly underperformed um, due to this year's result. We have recovered the underperformance that occurred since the end of eighteen. To fully catch up, there is a bunch more to go. Um, that said, he points out the significant winners that they have had. Uh, Atlas Air Worldwide, Consol Energy, 
euro dollar derivatives. They were short green brick partners, a housing hedge as well. And then, of course, the Twitter investment, significant losers, gold and then two undisclosed uh, shorts. And uh, I have no uh, insight into what what those are. Shan, you want to take a stab at this, too? Yeah, I mean, I think this is uh, consistent with what I was talking about earlier, Scott. I mean, you know, the reason that this fund and, and many funds underperformed was that we were essentially in a, in a beta-driven environment, particularly in the in, the, in growth sectors, um, you know, coming in over the last few years. So being able to actually look at companies and determine, most importantly, where to short um, and be able to take some of these macroeconomic tra- trends and translate them into trades, um, that is really what hedge funds uh, historically were able to do but um, not in a low interest rate liquidity fueled market that we had, you know, 17, 18, 19. Yeah. All right, let's get the headlines now with Christina Partzinevelos. Thank you, Scott. Here's your CNBC News update at this hour. Liz Truss is out as UK Prime Minister after announcing her resignation this morning, leaving the office as the shortest serving PM in British history. Lawmakers from both parties were calling for her to step down after the failed budget rollout and political turmoil over the past few weeks. Truss said that she will remain in office until a successor is chosen. She did not outlast the lettuce head. The Justice Department is lobbying Congress for what it says is critical funding for the January 6th investigation. The DOJ has called the probe the most wide-ranging in its history, with more than 870 arrests so far. Justice Department officials say failure to get extra funds will have a, quote, detrimental impact on the ability of the United States' attorney's offices across the country to fund future prosecutions. And the bridge connecting Sanibel Island to mainland Florida has reopened less than a month after its collapse due to Hurricane Ian. The three-mile causeway was badly damaged by the Category 4 hurricane and cut off the islands islands with more than 6,000 people. Officials say that crews worked around the clock to make the repairs and that work will continue for a permanent fix. Halftime is back in just two minutes. All right, we're back. Barclays is out with a note today on a preview of restaurants. They say Q3 sales re-accelerated modestly from the June pullback, demonstrating surprising resilience. They list a few names here, defensive winners they like, uh, McDonald's, Wendy's, QSR, uh, along with a couple others. Top co-top names have the potential to outperform Starbucks, uh, Darden, Bloomin' Brands. Best ideas, Starbucks, McDonald's, and Cisco. Josh Brown, you own Shake and Dutch. Yeah, I mean, these are much smaller. Um, the, the names that I own are a couple of billion dollars in market cap. And when I'm in this space, what I'm really looking for is not who's going to have the best operating margins next month, because that conversation puts me to sleep. I'm looking for chains that can go from a few hundred stores to a thousand or three or five thousand, which I think is the potential for bros uh, in particular. So, those are the types of stories that get me excited. I've seen a lot of them throughout my career work out really well. And I think right now Shaq and Bros have the perfect combination of just consumers who absolutely love the product, great mobile, uh, great employee base, and that potential to get way bigger than they currently are now from a footprint standpoint. You, you talked about Domino's the other day, that it's come down so much mm. that it's way too cheap fundamentally. That's what you said. Um, you're thinking about it as a potential yeah. hedge. Have you thought more about it? Well, I, th- I think this is, this is a stock that they completely threw out with all of these, stay at, quote unquote, stay at home stocks. And to some extent, that was warranted. Obviously, delivery pizza went through the roof during the lockdowns. 
I was half smirking saying that if you think we're going to have another battle with COVID this this uh, fall or winter, this would be the type of stock that could catch fire. I do believe that to be the case. But put that aside, Domino's Pizza's valuation has come down, I think, way too much, way more than is warranted. It's not a stay-at-home stock in real life. This is really a, a business that I think is fundamentally becoming very undervalued. So I don't own it yet. It's on my radar. The technicals still look terrible. I want to see some sign that the sellers are done, but I could end up owning it at some point later this year. Okay, uh, Mr. The Consumer is fabulous. Why don't you own any restaurant stocks if you think the consumer is so great? The, the, the lack of a catalyst is really, I can't, I look at these stocks. Lack of a and catalyst? Yeah. What, what, what catalyst do you need other than the people are the hungry? Consumers. You don't need a catalyst. Yeah. People no, are hungry, hungry and they got money every day. They're people hungry. are hungry. They got money. <laughs> I mean, why, what's day. the catalyst for travel? <laughs> OK, well, no, no, no. There is. a look. Honestly, tell me, why don't you own? Because there's a no restaurant stock incremental demand for any of these stocks. I mean, there's nothing about these individual stocks that says, oh, yeah. I mean, like, take a look at Starbucks. What's the catalyst? China. Give me a break. Uh, you know, McDonald's. McDonald's? I, look, Wendy's. You know, I, just I can't get excited, Scott. I'm trying. I'm getting excited in the conversation, but I'm not excited about the stocks. I, I just don't see it. Okay. I got I to love everything? No, but I mean, part of your whole entire thesis is how great the consumer is. And this is a spot that you have nothing in. I'm just curious as to why. I, I, listen, I don't think the thesis about a soft landing means that people are going to eat more Big Macs. I'm sorry if, if I've, you know, led you down that path. It's just not, I, I, that's not the connection for me. <laughs> okay, coming up, Mike Santoli has his midday word. We're right back. Senior markets commentator Mike Santoli joins us now from the New York Stock Exchange for his midday word. Uh, Hawkish Harker, that's what we'll call him yeah. uh, because he seemed to dump stocks just a little bit. What, what are your thoughts today so far? Right. That, no doubt about it. That was the timing. That's when bond yields again perked up. And that's been a very familiar dynamic. It was interesting that we got a little bit of a lift in the morning and the, and the short end of the Treasury curve kind of softened up in yield when we got the weak leading economic indicators report. Right. It seems a bit of a stretch to say that that was somehow going to set the scene for a Fed pause anytime soon. Uh, and Hawker comes out. You know, we talked about a Monday and Tuesday. Scott. We were free of, of Fed speak. We had this little uh, rebound rally. Market was oversold. We know that the inputs to what could make this a little more of a decent recovery. Seasonal sentiment, earnings seem to be okay. Uh, but that was the big one out there, that the Fed wants to reiterate its stance. We know they need to see inflation to come down, uh, but they're just reminding us uh, from, you know, uh, at any turn that they can find. All right. I'll see you in a few hours. That's Mike Santoli right. with his yep. midday word. We'll see him later on in overtime. Check out this mystery chart. The sector is on pace for its best week. In some two years, and every member of the committee today is in that space. Maybe you should be, too. We'll hear from them next. The defense ETF is up 7% this week alone. It's on pace now for its best week since May. Everybody owns a piece. Shan, you got L3 Harris. Tell me more. Yeah, we've owned this stock for a while. We talked about it last week, actually, on the show as, as one of my final trades. 
Importantly and unfortunately, we are seeing uh, increased defense spending outside of the United States. So while I'm concerned about international exposure for other companies in my portfolio, the fact that L3 Harris has both an innovation advantage as well as significant international contracting in place uh, makes it a, a, a name I, I can see continual growth in over the next couple of years. Josh, you own the ITA, and it's a reasonably recent move. You know, we're talking, what, a couple months? I, I don't remember, but yeah, I mean, look, Lockheed had a, had a awesome earnings, and that's a really big weighting here. This has been one of the most resilient parts of the market this year, and I, I think that these, these stocks can hold up even if we get worse news out of Eastern Europe, worse news uh, in terms of the Russia-Ukraine conflict. Like, these are the types of stocks that tend to do better in that environment. So there's both a strategic and a technical reason to want to stay here. Raytheon, Jimmy? Boeing, too, but Raytheon? Yeah, and it's in the key spaces that you want to be in. Missiles, aerospace, uh, intelligence, surveillance. Unfortunately, a lot of munitions are being spent, and we all hate it. We all hate it, but those munitions are going to have to be replaced, period. Okay, we got final trades uh, coming up next. Four o'clock Eastern, that is overtime. Is the worst over for Snap? We'll find out because their earnings are in the OT. The first mover disadvantage, really, it's been in the, in the advertising tech space, right? Because you take a look at them and then you say, well, what does it mean for Facebook and Google? But oftentimes, Snap has been hammered, certainly in most recent quarters. Some are suggesting, though, the worst is behind it. And we're going to find out when they put pen to paper in OT. I'll see all of you then with Chris Toomey, Morgan Stanley Private Wealth, Cameron Dawson, Keith Lerner, and Brenda Vangelo. As well. Look forward to that. Hope everybody joins me then. Uh, Shan, why don't you give me a final trade? Uh, we're going to do Oracle today, uh, growing its ex expanding its business for small and medium-sized enterprises. Cloud is about 30% of revenue now, and, and it's an imp important growing part from a margin perspective as well as a, a revenue perspective. They also have Cerner. Uh, they made this acquisition, so they have some touch into the healthcare space, and I think that that is going to be one of those longer-term trends that we're going to be watching okay. as healthcare is in dire need of in, in innovation and disruption. Josh, give me a final, but also give me a thought on Snap, if you would. In the you know, we have a little bit of time, not too much, but I'd love your your thought here. Snap is the easiest budget for advertisers to cut of all of the big platforms. I I, I don't want anything to do with it into a slowdown. Uh, final trade is IEO. This is a sector where everything is going well. Uh, you've got 40 out of 50 stocks that make up this index ETF. These are energy producers above their 50-day moving average, 47 out of 50 above the 200-day moving average. The median P.E. ratio in IEO right now is 9. Median price to free cash flow is 7. These are cheap stocks. Their charts are going up and to the right. All of the geopolitical stuff is in their favor. I think they can continue to work. Okay. Thank you for that. Uh, Farmer Jim, finally to you. Yes, Scott, if I can get my mind off of having a Big Mac for lunch, my final trade is Boeing. And I know where it's been, but you've got to respect the fact that it's up 15% over the last three weeks. Ask yourself why. There's a lot going on there. Okay. Uh, Harker, he was hawkish about 59 minutes and 55 seconds ago. Stocks are now mixed. I'll see you in the OT, the exchanges now. You've been listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast. You can always catch us live weekdays at 12 Eastern, only on CNBC. The spirit of performance defines Acura, and now it's electric. Introducing the all-electric ZDX. 
Acura's most powerful SUV yet. While what powers their cars may change, the energy that makes Acura never will. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system and up to 313-mile range on a single charge and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is everything they said electric could never be. It was built with the driver in mind, just like Acura's been doing since the beginning. We could talk all day, but the only way to experience this electric performance is to drive it yourself. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com.